what we're getting ready to do this morning. We're beginning a new study in the book of 1 Peter for the months of June and July. It's part of our uh, encouragement. Each summer we have groups that meet in homes. Over 250 people this year have signed up to meet in homes during the week. They'll be studying, taking the things we study on Sunday morning as the foundation for their curriculum. And if you would like to be part of one of those groups that meets during the week, I encourage you to call the church office, let them know, and I'm sure they'll find a place for you. Um, why are we studying First Peter? We're calling this series, God's Got This. God's Got This. And you may not be experiencing hardship or trouble or suffering right now, but someone you know is, or you're about to, and you'll want to know, what does the Bible say? What is God's word for me in this moment? We are living in a time where the world is not getting better, and to be a Christian is becoming more of a dangerous commitment to say that you follow Christ. And we hear about persecution overseas of our brothers and sisters. Can't imagine that level of persecution coming here. But your pastor believes it will. And I don't know if it'll be that serious in my lifetime, but it could be. I definitely believe in the lives of our children and grandchildren it will be. And you and I need to be prepared because suffering has derailed the faith of more people in church history than I think anything else. Uh, the enemy to faith is suffering. Because we have so many questions, things that we don't have easy answers for. If God is so powerful and He is in control, why do people suffer? Why do these bad things take place in the world? Why does He allow evil to walk freely, it seems? And some people who make a basic commitment to Christ, they see that and their faith is shaken, rocked. And I don't want that to happen to you. As your pastor, as your brother in Christ, I want you to be able to face those hard times when they come with a rock-solid faith and sense of direction of what God has for you. And so as we study 1 Peter, the title of this first message is The Truth About Your Troubles. The Truth About Your Troubles. This, um, this time of the year, every year when we lived in South Louisiana, was very significant. We used it as an outreach event, and that's a whole other story. But the first weekend of June marked the opening of hurricane season for the Gulf Coast and all of the eastern states. And we don't worry much about hurricanes here. We take tornadoes very seriously. And so if one was coming, and you only had 10 minutes to get ready, and I came to your house and I said, friend, a tornado's coming. You've got 10 minutes. I've got four things to tell you that you need to know. Now, at that moment, you would be listening very carefully to what I was about to say, wouldn't you? Four things you need to know, and this thing is coming that is so deadly and threatens your whole family and your home. And that's where we are as we open up 1 Peter. This is a book written to people who are facing one of the great persecutions in Christian history. And they are, they are needing what he's about to say. And so these are the things as we open up this book, that God most wants you to know to prepare you for suffering and for hard times and difficulties when they come. What the Father wants me to know when I am in trouble. Number one, He is mine and I am His. He is mine and I am His. Listen to verse one, first five verses as it opens up. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then I want to read for you verse 12, almost the very last verse of the book in chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to what he says. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Part of the preparation for this series, for any, anybody that's going to teach the Bible, whether you're a Bible study group leader, or teacher, or pastor, is to read that book over and over again. And so, for the last two months at least, I've been doing that with First Peter, just reading it again and again. You pick up after a while certain clues in the book. Now, Peter was somebody that many of us are already familiar with. He was one of the 12 originally chosen apostles that Jesus uh, selected that followed him while he was on earth. He, um, he denied Jesus, and we know that story. He denied him three times, and of all the apostles, he knows what it means to stand in the grace of God because he needed it, didn't he? He denied Jesus, and Jesus restored him. He was the first one out of the boat when he saw Jesus walking on water. Uh, he did it too. He was the first one to declare that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Son of God. He was an early leader in the Jerusalem church and then eventually left Jerusalem and traveled with his wife. We don't think about that very often, but he, he was married. And he took his wife and they traveled and took the gospel to other Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. James, the brother of Jesus, took his place as leader of the church after Peter left. Now this letter was written during a time of persecution under the Emperor Nero. Uh, AD 54 to 68 was the, were the years of his reign. So this letter was written during the latter part of that, AD 65 to 68. It was written in the 60s, not the 1960s, but some 1900 years before that in the 60s. And, and this was a time of horrendous stress. We know, for example, that Peter was in Rome. You'll notice in the verse I read at the very end of chapter 5, it says, those in Babylon greet you. And Babylon was code language for Rome. Uh, there was a literal Babylon, but he was probably not referring to that. He was referring to where he was from, where he was writing the letter in Rome. And we know from tradition that after he wrote Second Peter, that Peter himself was a victim of the persecution, crucified upside down during the Emperor Nero's reign. Probably wrote this letter after Paul had died. You say, Pastor, what, what makes you think that? When I look at the places that he addresses the letter, this was a letter that was intended to circulate among many churches. And, and, and the churches he describes make a clockwise circuit around Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. He writes those, 
the letters to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Just a counterclockwise kind of a motion through Asia Minor. Peter did not start those churches. Who did? Paul did. And why would he write to encourage the people that were first brought to Christ by Paul? I suspect it's because Paul was dead, that they were getting word that he had died, and they most needed their faith to be strengthened and encouraged. Two men are mentioned at the end of the letter, Silvanus and Mark, traveling companions of Paul, now with Peter in Rome and not with Paul. And so when you put all of that together, it looks like he wrote this after Paul had died. Speculation, but... but seems to be a lot of weight for it in the letter. So Paul's dead. They need encouragement. Now, Nero was a total psycho. Everybody say psycho? No, you don't have to do that. He was nuts. He was crazy. And he got worse the longer that he was the emperor. He used to take women and children and Christians and put them in the Colosseum with wild animals who would literally shred them, tear them apart limb by limb. And they did it for entertainment. He would take Christians and impale them and set them on fire, and they would use them to light the gardens where we, he would have his evening parties. This guy was bad news. And Paul, uh, Peter is writing to individuals who are experiencing or about to experience that level of persecution. Ten times worse than anything anybody here has ever experienced because you were a Christian. And, and so how appropriate that you and I would study this if I want to learn about suffering and learn about hard times. Now, what's really interesting, the first five verses of this letter, it's like everything you need to know about the gospel crammed in the five verses. I mean, just it's just packed. We could spend weeks just on those verses. I promise you, we really could. And uh, in your groups this week, those of you who are gathering, I hope that you'll work at, th- at those, and take those apart and look at those very, very carefully. They're packed with the entire gospel. What does that tell me? If I'm getting ready to suffer, and I want a biblical way of of responding to it, I am not equipped to do it unless I fully understand the gospel. I need this stuff. I need to understand what God has done for me and and what I can do in the face of this evil or the suffering. I want to summarize it this way. I already did it with the point. But, But here's my summary of those verses. He is mine and I am his. No matter what comes my way, no matter what happens to me, he is mine and I am his. I want to summarize it with three descriptions of you as a Christian that I believe we can see in this text. There's so many things we could talk about, but we need to get the general message. What is he saying? He is mine and I am his. How does he describe you in these verses? He describes you first as an elect pilgrim. An elect pilgrim. Sound like John Wayne, pilgrim. Doesn't it? Elect pilgrim. That description, a pilgrim who is elect by God, describes immediately your relationship to the world and your relationship to God in two words. As a pilgrim, you're a sojourner in this world. You are passing through. This world is not your home. And the apostle, over and over again in this letter, is going to drive that point home. And so that word pilgrim is describing your relationship to the world. And then there's this word elect. And the word elect and um, the word election are biblical words. And we need not fear them. 
But sometimes these words are easily misunderstood. And one of the reasons we don't want to talk about the word elect or election is because we have some misconceptions, some man-made thinking about those words rather than looking at the whole of Scripture in terms of what they mean. But the basic meaning of the word is that God chose us. There's a mystery to that, but it means that God chose us. Some people would make a great emphasis saying that God chose some to go to heaven and others to go to hell, and that you didn't have a choice in the matter. And yet that flies in the face of the teaching of Scripture. It flies in the face of John 3.16, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever is anyone, anyone. In uh, one of the great verses that uh, helped me on this subject years ago is Matthew 23, 37. You just jot it down in the margin. I'll read it to you. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he's weeping. He is wailing. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. That was the will of Jesus. I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He had a will. They had a will. He wanted to gather them together. He was crying. He was weeping, wanting to gather them together. But they were not willing to do it. Two wills at work. And we see that all through Scripture. But the bottom line is what Paul writes in Romans 10, 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. And there's so much more we could talk about this. Because he defines election. How does election happen? What's the manner or the means for it? He says we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He knew you before the world was made. God knows all things through eternity. Doesn't mean he causes all things, but he knows all things, and he knew you. He knew who you are and what you would be. He made you. He created you. But he also knows your entire history. He knows what's going to happen to you this afternoon. He knows what's going to happen to you this week. And he knew how you would respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We could go on and talk about that at length. But here's the thing I want you to hear, and you'll miss the point if you don't hear this. He is mine, and I am his. He chose me. When the world says, you're Don, you're an idiot for believing in Jesus, you've got a mental problem, you're intellectually broken, your morals are skewed, you are a hater of people, you know, when the world does all that kind of stuff, I need to know that he is mine, and I'm his, that he chose me, that I am an elect pilgrim. I'm not only an elect pilgrim, but you and I can call ourselves a born-again child. In verse 3, it says that he has begotten us again to a living hope. And the word begotten means, normally, describes your birth, your first birth. But here he talks about that we have been begotten again. We've had a second birth. And those of us that trusted Jesus, we have been born again. That's describing the transformation that takes place with salvation. When a person trusts Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, takes up residence, 
and begins to transform a person from the inside out, the spirit of that human being that was separated from God, cut off from God, the spirit that was meant to commune with God is now made alive by the Holy Spirit and been born again. And so now I'm part of his family. He's my father and I'm his child. But there's a third description here that you and I are also a cherished heir. A cherished heir. It says we come into an inheritance that's incorruptible, number one. It's undefiled, number two. It does not fade away, number three. It's reserved in heaven, number four. He describes this incredible inheritance. And it's for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. The richest, most powerful man or woman on the planet, when they die, it's over. Everything they had is gone. For the Christian, it's a complete reversal of fortune. Everything we lost in this life, we now gain. Everything we wish we could have gotten to do, you know, I wish I could have gone and saw this country or saw that monument or read that book, everything just overturned. And we are heirs to an inheritance. He is mine and I am his. What the Father wants me to know when I'm in trouble, that's the first place I need to go. There's a second thing. He is in control of everything that is happening to me. He is in control of everything that is happening to me. In verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. I want to stress some things here about suffering. Uh, the first thing I see in this passage is that suffering does not eliminate rejoicing. Look at that verse 6. They're rejoicing while they're suffering. The two things are happening at the same time. They're not exclusive. And that's what makes Christians absolutely different from the rest of the world, is that we have the capacity to genuinely grieve and hurt and suffer and rejoice at the same time. It's real joy. He's not describing people who are faking it. He's not saying put on a plastic smile and just sing a song. Uh, he's talking about people with real joy. He's not talking about people who like to suffer either. You know, there's some Christians that don't feel like they've been to worship unless they've been bulldozed by a Bible sermon. I mean, <laughs> he's not talking about people who are masochists, spiritual masochists. He's not describing that. He's talking about people who are hurting, but even in the midst of the hurt, they're able to have joy and rejoice. It does mean that you have the ability to know joy in the presence of suffering. Something else about this that we need to stress is that suffering is part of the believing life. Uh, I believe it's in Philippians 1. He says, it's, it's been granted to you not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Two things we've been given, to believe in Christ, but also to suffer. I wish somebody had told me about the second one a little faster as a Christian, that suffering was part of the believing life. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Don't be shocked when suffering comes. Don't, don't be disturbed by it. Recognize that it's part of the believing life. You know, when a new Christian first trusts Christ, it just seems like everything they pray, God gives them. I don't know about you, but I mean, it just seems that way. And, 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 so, and then something difficult happens. And some pressure comes into their life. And there's a suffering moment. There's a hardship. There's a difficulty. And that new Christian, if they've not been taught, they've not been discipled, they're shaken. And they say, I don't understand this. I thought God loved me. I thought God was going to take care of me. God, where are you in this? Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe that's why this is happening to me. And all these questions come up. 
But, but the thing that stands out most in this verse, verse 6, listen to it again. In this you greatly rejoice, rejoicing, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. I want to know about those words, if need be. Who's behind the need be? Who decides who needs to allow suffering, have suffering in their life? Who's controlling that? I believe with all my heart that the Bible teaches that God is in control of everything that comes into your life. There's, there's nothing that happens to you by accident. There's nothing that slips by the almighty sovereign God who sits on his throne and who is your father. And when that thing comes into your life, you can rest assured and know that his hand is on the thermostat, that he is well aware of what's happening, and that he is in control. And you need not fear that. In 1 John 4, 19, the Bible says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him. People who suffer according to the will of God. Is it ever God's will that you experience hard times or suffering? The Bible says it is. And you don't have to read any book except the book of Job to see that God will allow hardship into a person's life for a reason. You say, and here's the question you need to ask next. Why in the world would God do that? What possible benefit is there to God letting suffering come into my life? Well, that's number three. What the Father wants me to know when I'm in trouble is this. He is proving and purifying my faith. He is purifying my faith. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week, but he's describing the return of Christ. And at that moment, you are able to go before him, and because of the work that suffering has accomplished in your life, you have a genuine faith, and that results in praise, honor, and glory. Not to Jesus, although there's going to be plenty of that, but in this context, verse 7 is saying, praise towards you, honor towards you, glory towards you, from the Father to you, because of your faith. So Peter is telling us that suffering accomplishes something. I had the privilege, I think it was a privilege, to be present at the birth of all six of my children. We did the not natural childbirth, we did prepared childbirth. Natural childbirth is where women break things in half and scream. We didn't do natural childbirth, we did prepared childbirth. We kind of knew the terror that was coming. And I knew when to step back. I mean, that's part of the preparation. I knew when to step back and keep my mouth shut as she went through the agony of giving birth and, and, and the personality change that happens and all those things that take place. And her, she sits up and her head spins, all that, all that, all that. And then after all of that difficulty, all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that changes when they put the baby in her arms. And suddenly she's all smiles. And that suffering, she was willing to endure it. Why? Because it was going to produce something. It was accomplishing something. And in this case, our suffering does produce something. What does it do? What does it produce? Here's how I would summarize it. What God does with your suffering in, in every instance of hardship is to take your faith to another level. He takes your faith to another level. You see, your faith was not meant to be something static that just, well, I trusted Jesus in 1952, and so I'm going to put this on the shelf. 
that I trusted Jesus, going to heaven, got my ticket punched. I don't need to exercise faith again the rest of my life. That is not the way faith works. And so what he does when hardship comes into your life is you are put in a position where you have to exercise faith. And so what the verse 7 tells us is that faith is more precious than gold to the Father. More precious than gold. Years ago, I worked for an engineering firm. One of the clients I had in Lafayette, Louisiana, one of the strangest setups for, for an environmental engineering uh, firm to deal with was a place where they made jewelry settings out of gold and silver, chromium, titanium, whatever they were making it with. And normally, I would test for the presence of poisons, you know, toxins in water when a plant manufactured something and they would discharge water. It's supposed to be clean. And we would test for the presence of those those poisons, chemicals, toxins. In this particular plant, we were testing for the presence of gold. That's pretty cool. I love writing that out. Test and see if there's any gold in this water. Silver, you know, the, 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 the pieces of dust and little fragments that would break off of the settings as they worked on them. They even had a little suction at every table, like a vacuum, and it, and it pulled air through the vacuum. And, and they had a collection point, and at that collection point was gold dust. You know, little pieces of dust that would fall on the table would get sucked up in that vacuum. Gold was that precious to that company. The Bible says your faith is more precious than gold. Uh, even little faith is precious to your father. Jesus said faith the size of a mustard seed was sufficient for God to go to work. And, and so your faith is precious to him. Now your faith by itself... A couple things need to be happening. This verse talks about it. It needs to be proven. It needs to be tested. When, uh, in the old days, when I made a will, if I made a will, and I'm talking 100, 200 years ago, I would make a will indicating what I wanted to happen with my stuff after I died, and someone would witness me making, signing that will, and then they would sign it, and then I died. And then they would take that will to a judge and the judge would look at that will, and he'd say, are these witnesses around? Yeah, the witness would come up. We're the witnesses. Did, did Don write this? Yeah. Did he sign off on this? Yeah, and those are our signatures right there. They called that proving the will. Proving the will. And, and in a very real sense, that's what happens with faith during suffering. It's not something on the shelf. Its existence is proven. Its existence is tested. And, um, and the old saying is true, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. You don't know how much faith you have till you have to use it. And so hard times, difficulties, suffering tests your faith. It also purifies your faith. It's not something that just proves that it exists. It also causes it to get stronger and better. You know, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so faith is one of the ways you and I please him when I trust him. I bring pleasure to him. And so what he wants is for that trust to become more and more pure. You say, well, what do you mean, Don? Well, when something goes wrong, what's the first thing you do? That tells me how pure your faith is. If the first thing you do is drop to your knees and say, oh, God, you got pretty good faith going on there. If the last thing you do is cry out to God, your faith has got a lot of other things in the way. You're looking to other things to save you. You're looking to people to save you. You got safety nets all over the place. And so what God wants to do is make your faith pure and get all of the other stuff that you're trusting out of the way. And so he wants to deepen it, grow it, stretch it, and make it pure. And so that's what God is doing when there's trouble. He's proving and purifying my faith. 
Don't just stand there and pray. And, and listen, we all do it. Don't just stand there and say, pray and pray, oh God, why? Why are you letting this happen to me? You know the answer now. You know the answer now. And just go to him and say, oh Father, I don't understand this. I don't have a clue. But oh God, I trust you. My trust is in you. Well, there's a fourth thing that God wants you to know when suffering comes into your life. Number four, he is deepening my relationship with him. He is deepening my relationship with him. Look at verse 8. Talking of Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's developing faith, but what does a fully developed faith look like? What does it do? I understand, Pastor, that it pleases God when I trust Him, but why do I need a proven, purified faith in my life? What good does that do me? Your faith is your pathway to intimacy with God. And when you exercise faith, He uses that to deepen your experience of Him. He wants you to see Him. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to experience Him. In fact, specifically during times of trouble, I want to experience what this text describes. First, a love that cannot be explained. It says in verse 8, having not seen, you love. You can't explain that. You say, Don, why do you love Jesus? I can't explain that. I can give you some reasons from the Bible, but, but I'm telling you that I love him. He's a person. He lives. I love Jesus. I can't explain that to you. And you can't take that away from me. And the more that you walk by faith, the more he draws you to a place where your love for him grows. You've never seen him, but you love him. A second thing I want to experience. I want to experience a joy that cannot be described. Verse 8, he says, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible. I think the King James, old King James says, a joy unspeakable. You're experiencing it. It's real. It's happening to you. But I can't do it. It can't be described. And then I want to experience a Savior who cannot be seen. Verse 8, he says, though now you do not see him. In verse 9, he says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who's doing that? Jesus is doing that. Jesus is doing that. He is mine and I am his. He's control of everything that's happening to me. And so even when I'm suffering, I can be joyful. Why? Because my Father's on His throne, and He is taking care of me. He has set His love on me. I have a thousand reasons to rejoice and be confident in Him. He is proving and purifying my faith. I can't see the Savior, but the Savior is at work. And there's a salvation that's still yet to come. The salvation that gives me a brand new body. Every Christian, a brand new body. We'll talk about that next week. And, and that salvation is coming, but the process is one of developing faith. And so if I was going to summarize everything that's going on when you're suffering, know this, he is deepening your relationship with him. The grandson, Callum, when he comes to my house, he plays wherever he wants. The only reason he doesn't go upstairs is we have one of those gates that keep him from going upstairs. He goes where he wants. 
And we're sitting out in the middle of the floor. He's slapping around. He's happy, whatever he's doing. And then a stranger comes in the house. Somebody walks in he doesn't recognize. Everything changes. He gets up. He sees the stranger. He immediately turns. He runs to his papa. He doesn't want to stand by me. He wants me to pick him up. So I pick him up. And from the safety of his perch on my shoulder, he can look at the stranger. And if the stranger starts coming towards us, he will whip his head around and bury it in my shoulder. And I feel the tension relax as I hold him just a little closer. And you know, children are that way with their parents and their grandparents. You know, when they first go to the playground, they kind of sit on the bench with their mom or dad and they watch the other kids play. It's for curiosity. And then they, they kind of figure out what they're supposed to do. And then they start walking towards the other kids. And while they're walking towards the other kids, they're looking back over their shoulder to see if mom and dad's still looking. See if they're still there. And then they're having fun with the other kids. They're playing around and they're, they're enjoying themselves and having a great time until one of the other kids get hurt or acts badly or, or they get hurt. And suddenly they're off of the toy, they're off of the merry-go-round, and they run to their mom, they run to their dad, and they get up in their arms because that's the first place where they go. So as kids, we, we like to have things that make us feel secure. Our parents do that. Grandparents do that. Sometimes it's a blanket. Sometimes it's a stuffed animal. Sometimes it's, it's a pacifier. It's different things that make us feel calm. You know what? Kids outgrow that, don't they? Sometimes the stuffed animal goes on the shelf. At other times, that you let them out of the car. They don't even want you to speak to them. When they're getting out with their friends at high school or whatever, yeah, 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 mom, dad, go away, go away, go away. They don't want that anymore. But you know, as adults, as Christians, as we grow in Christ, we are to never, ever outgrow our impulse to run to our Father when we hurt. And Peter's saying that to you and me today. If you're experiencing a tough time, no, it may not be someone threatening your life or your family like somewhere overseas. But if you're going through trouble, God wants you at this moment to put down everything else. Forget all your other things that you're hanging on to that you think make you safe. Everything you're looking to for your security. Let it all, just leave it lie. And run to your Father. Let Him do His work. Discover joy in the midst of that suffering. At this moment in our service, we're going to have a time of response. It's an opportunity for us to, to take God's Word and apply it to ourselves. If you're a person here and you've never experienced life with God, you've never become one of His children, the Bible says that those who receive Him by faith are those who are born again, the born of God. To receive him by faith means to put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from this thing we call sin inside of every human heart. That sin will condemn you and separate you from God, from every person you know, will destroy your life, and it's eating at you right now. The advantage the Christian has is that we put our trust in Jesus, that when he died on the cross, he bore our sins. And took our punishment. He stood before all the punishment 
of hell, literally, that you and I deserve, and he took our place. So when I trust him, I'm trusting him to forgive me and take away my sins. When I trust him, he also promises to change me. He doesn't leave me like I am, slapping around, struggling with sin, filled with with, uh, darkness and evil and all that sort of thing. The Bible says the Holy Spirit, he comes to live inside me when I trust Christ. And he is a Holy Spirit. He begins to change me. And he begins to produce in me new desires, new wants, and a new capacity to battle sin in my life. If you've never trusted Jesus, that's your starting point. And this morning when we stand and sing, I want to invite you, whether you're in the balcony or on the floor, to come and put your trust in Christ. The pastors and I will be standing here. We'll we'll help you. We'll answer your questions. And then if you're a person who's just hurting, or you know someone that's hurting, and you need to pray for them, well, you can come kneel at the front and pray, bring a friend with you, Pray with one of the pastors. You don't have to explain everything. Just say, Pastor, pray for me. You may want to grab someone in the pew next to you and just hold their hand and just say, pray for me. But let this be a time where we respond to the Lord and what he's saying. Our Father and our God, we're grateful to you that you have promised for your people that you would never leave us or forsake us and that you would be with us always, even to the very end of time. We thank you for that precious promise. We thank you for this word from Peter this morning. We pray, Father, for that person who is hurting and desperate this morning to be encouraged by your Holy Spirit. We invite you to walk among us over the next few moments, to speak and encourage, heal, change, strengthen, even as you're stretching the hearts of the dear ones that are crying out to you in this moment. Fathers, we respond to you. Would you lead us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.